Hey, good morning, church family. It is always so good to see those of you in person. So grateful for all of you joining us online today. Um, I'm just glad you're here. I woke up this morning and I went to talk to God and nothing came out. I had no voice. It was gone. And there's somebody here thinking, God answered my prayer. All right? <laughs> but that's not how I took the moment. All right? Allergies crept into me yesterday. Thankfully, I think my voice is coming to life a little bit. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray for your hearts right now. And I want you to pray for my voice right now. And we're going to see what God will do over the next few minutes, okay? Let's bow our heads, close our eyes. God, I'm asking in the power of the name of Jesus for your Holy Spirit to work in this place today. I thank you for what you've already done. The songs we have lifted up to you. The words Sharice just spoke straight from your spirit into our hearts. We thank you for the prayers that have been prayed, and right now, I pray, God, that you will pour through me the gift of preaching that Christ may be formed in hearts through these words. God, this is all for you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, it was 15 years, almost to this day, that Casey and I flew out here to Memphis to interview for this job. True, it was nine months old when we made that trip. He didn't, we didn't make Memphis our home until True was 13 months old, but it was here in Memphis. He took his first step, not in Texas, in Memphis. So when we flew out here, Jim Hinkle and Verlin Harp, who was an elder at the time of this church, they picked us up at the airport in a 15-passenger van because that's how most people want to be picked up when they're interviewing for a church. They want to be treated like youth group members, all right? So, so they picked us up, and they, they're driving us around. It was a great two days. We ate at, we ate at Firebirds, got us a steak, went down to the Cheesecake Corner. Casey and I joked to this day, it was at the Cheesecake Corner that we heard the voice of God say, this is where you need to make, like, this is your home. This is it. Come and taste and see that the, that the Lord is good. And that's where the calling of God came upon us. Uh, Jim, in typical Jim Hinkle fashion, what happened when they picked us up from the airport is that we didn't go straight to a restaurant to eat, and we didn't come here to tour this campus. We had never seen the Sycamore View Church before, had only driven through Memphis in our lives, and never even stopped here. But we he, he took us on a little tour of the city, started showing us things, showed us Caritas Village down in Binghampton. Little did we know, a few years later, we would both be living there in that neighborhood. Took us on a tour where we drove by Elmwood Cemetery and we just went through a lot of different neighborhoods and we ended up down at the Lorraine Motel where we got out of that van and we walked around the parking lot. And I don't want to make this sound like there was a moment there at the Lorraine Motel where Dr. King was assassinated. I don't want this to sound like, like that's when the calling of God came upon us, but there was a part that that moment played in our lives helping us see that God has been writing this story in the city of Memphis for a number of years, and God has not finished writing this story, that there was a movement that began, began decades ago, and a movement that is still happening, and a God who is still writing the story of the kingdom of God coming into the 901, something happened in that moment that began tugging at our hearts. I think for most of us, and Sharice, you said it so well earlier, I mean, Dr. King, when we think of Dr. King, and he wasn't a perfect man, but when we think about him, we think pastor and author, husband, father, son, friend, inmate, demonstrator, committed to nonviolence. He launched a movement, and people followed. And for that movement, there was an expectation for demonstrators. So this is somewhat of a segue, because this month we're talking about a rhythm of life, which comes from the ancients, what they would call a rule of life, where we're just encouraging you and inviting you to think about what practices and disciplines are in your life to help you to grow into the image of Christ. 
And I don't know if you knew that there were practices and disciplines of people who participated in demonstrations in the civil, right, civil rights movement that they had to sign on to and commit to. Here are 10 of them. If you wanted to participate in some of the demonstrations in Birmingham, here were 10 things you had to commit to. Here's what they were. Meditate daily on the teachings of Jesus. To remember always that the nonviolent movement in Birmingham seeks justice and reconciliation, not victory. To walk and talk in the manner of love, for God is love. To pray daily to be used by God in order that all might be free. To sacrifice personal wishes in order that all might be free. To observe with both friend and foe the ordinary rule of courtesy. Imagine if people committed to it today, right? Seek to perform regular service for others and the world. Listen to this one. Refrain from violence of fist, tongue, or heart. To strive to be in good spiritual and bodily health. And to follow the directions of the movement and the captains of a demonstration. In other words, if you had a passion for justice and you wanted to participate, it wasn't just a matter of you showing up. It was the leaders were like, if you show up, we need your heart to be ready for what we are about. The communally, we are going to commit to some practices and disciplines to prepare us to be exactly what it is God wants us to be. So we're in a series right now called Rhythm of Life, where we have an adult faith, combined adult faith option in Bible class on Sunday mornings where Jim Hinkle's facilitating a time. This morning, Grant Moore uh, taught about Bible study and what it means just to be in the Word of God. And then the sermons through the rest of January, we're talking about rhythm of life. It comes from what the ancients called rule of life. It was never plural, rules of life. It was rule of life. It's the idea of a trellis. It was a, a, a support structure. And that's what we want to talk about with you. That's what we want to invite you into is what is the support structure in your life? so that you can grow into what it is Christ wants you to be. Now, I know when you think about the word rhythm, some of you have some, some of you have a lot. Some of you, you're at a wedding, there's a dance floor, you're going to at some point find your way out there. Some of you have none, like there's none. It's skipped over you, you don't have any, there's nothing that would ever get you out on the dance floor. But in Galatians 5, the language we read is, keep in step with the Spirit of God. So God's inviting us into a rhythm where we, wanna, we need to move at the pace of God. And though Jesus never gave a teaching where Jesus talked about, like, use the phrase spiritual disciplines or rule of life or covenant of life or rhythm of life, like, it was, it was never language Jesus used. He modeled what it is we're talking about this month. So these verses aren't on the screen, but in Luke chapter 5, verse 16, it says, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. In Luke chapter 6, verse 12, it says, Jesus spent the night in prayer with God. There are two times you read that Jesus did something because it was his custom. In Luke chapter 4, he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. When the people of God got together, Jesus was there. In Luke chapter 22, verse 39, it says Jesus went to the Mount of Olives to pray, as was his custom. It's like that's just what Jesus would do. He would commit to space. He would go to be with God. And there ain't nobody in this room or in this space today... And, and your busy lives, whose lives were busier than the life of Jesus, yet he still found time to commit to the things that would keep, keep him connected to God, that would grow his own heart. So Jesus committed to some of these same rhythms. So the question for you is this, is what practices are there in your life? Not beliefs, what practices are in your life that are helping you grow into who it is God wants you to be? What disciplines in your life are present, not just beliefs, what disciplines are there to help you to grow? 
And we're inviting you to think about these things. And I don't think the right question to ask is, God, how do you want me to grow in you? I think the right question to ask is, God, how do you want to encounter me so that we can grow? Because when we think spiritual disciplines, a lot of times we think prayer Bible study, which are great. Don't ever want to underestimate them. But there are so many spiritual disciplines because God has created a number of them. Because God has wired us differently, has given us personalities, and then God wants to step into the personalities he's given us to help us to grow and to mature. So just imagine with me for a moment. Let's just say there's a young kid named Kevin, six years old, and he wants to be really good at the guitar. Now for any parent who has children who begins to play an instrument in their house, you go through a period of, it's awful, right? Like, you got to get rid of pets because the pet, there'll, there'll be trauma in the life of the pet forever. And you may follow the pet because there may be trauma in your life too. But just, just imagine with me, a little kid named Kevin, six years old, is amazed by the guitar and he wants to be great at it. And now imagine that an angel comes to Kevin one day and the angel helps give Kevin a vision. And in the vision, angel and the Kevin and Kevin are sitting down and let's just say they're sitting in the Orpheum. And it's a room full of people, and up on the stage is a young man, and he is playing the guitar as good as you've ever heard somebody play the guitar. I mean, from that stage, I mean, there's just, there's fluidity, there's grace, it's beautiful and wonderful, the crowd loves it, it's mesmerizing. And the angel leans over and says, Kevin, do you ever want to play like that? And little six-year-old Kevin's like, yeah, I want to play like that one day. And the angel says, well, Kevin, that's you in 20 years. But if you want to play like that, you have to practice. And then the angel says, so now you have in mind who it is you want to be. And now put the disciplines and practices in your life so that you can become that person. And one of the things that Satan, one of the things the enemy wants to do to us is to help us think that the Great Commission in Matthew 28 says, go into the world and make converts not go into the world and make disciples. Or to help us have this idea of Christianity, like once you become a Christian, like the big thing is like just cross your fingers and hope you get into heaven in the end and hope you do just enough to be in eternity with God instead of understanding Jesus saved you to grow you. The idea in the mind of God, the desire for God is to help us to grow to become more and more like Christ, which is why transformation is so important. Now, how we think about transformation changes, right? Uh, Rich Velotis wrote a book, The Deeply Formed Life, and what he talks about in it is that conservative Christians, and not talking about politically, but theologically, conservative Christians often think about theology, or, or they think about transformation as believing the right things. So you want your theology to be right. Progressive Christians often think about transformation as right action, right engagement, like social engagement. And then you have charismatic or Pentecostal Christians who often think about transformation as the right experience. And there's a little bit of truth in all of them. There is a theology that needs to be right, believing the right things. There is social engagement that should be the fruit that comes from our lives, like service to just be a part of who we are. And there is an experience that God wants people to have. But the whole thing isn't just about having the mind right. It's not just having your actions right. It's not just the right experience. It's knowing that Jesus wants to transform us to look more and more and more like Christ. Which is why disciplines and practices are so helpful for us. So Pope John the 23rd, he had a r rhythm of life that went like this. 
that 15 minutes of silent prayer upon rising in the morning, 15 minutes of spiritual reading, that before bed, a general examination of conscience followed by confession and then identifying issues for the next morning's prayer. Arranging the hours of the day to make this rule possible. Setting aside specific time for prayer, study, recreation, and sleep. And the last thing is making a habit of turning the mind to God in prayer. And I want to walk you through what my rhythm of life is. That God and I spent some time together last November. Developed the rule of life for 2023. This is something I do in my own life every 12 to 18 months. So I don't want to violate the text that I'm going to open up to you in a minute of Matthew chapter 6 where it says, don't let other people know that you're giving, praying, or fasting because I'm about to let you know some of the things I commit to. I just want you to see what it's like. So some of my prayer commitments for this year is 15 minutes of prayer each morning. Usually it's in this room that we're in right now. Five minutes each night, just a time for me to reflect and thank God for the day. That once a month to honor a 30-minute time of silence before God. I need God to grow my uh, capacity to be able to sit in space alone with the Lord. And that I, I know prayer will happen sporadically throughout each day. It's how I intercede for people and pray for people and pray just on the spot. But intentionality, like these other things, these are intentional spaces for me to commit to throughout the day. Bible intake for me just over the, like the first, first four months of 2023 is going to look like this. I'm gonna, I, my, I try to read through the Gospels January, February, March, and April. Each month I want to read all four Gospels. I want to be in the pastoral epistles once a month. I feel drawn to First and Second Timothy and Titus. And three Psalms per week. Just, it gives me prayer language. So my commitment this year isn't to read through the entire Bible. It's not to even read through the New Testament. There's some specific things I'm committing to in the Word of God. My commitment right now is to try to fast two times a week. This is hard, especially when you work at a church because people are bringing food by all the time. There are a couple of writing projects for me this year and any writing I've ever done with books or articles, it's a spiritual experience for me that I want bathed in prayer and I want it to come from this connection to God. A couple of things I've added that I've never had in a rhythm of life before is cultivating memory is I want to become a really good note taker because I don't consider myself old, but my memory is not as good as it was 10 years ago. So when I read a book, I could read a book and then you could ask me three weeks later what I read and I can't remember things in it. So now I, I carry around two different notebooks that I'm constantly writing down either things I hear from people, ways to pray for folks, things I may hear from God, ways I'm engaging scripture. I, I've got to become a better note taker for me to remember things that happen in my life each day. And last thing is just encouragement. Uh, there are more and more, especially younger ministers, pastors, who are becoming discouraged and are leaving ministry. So I'm trying to reach out to one just cold call people once a week call up their church for nothing other than just encourage younger ministers. All right, so this is like a rhythm for me. Now, for you, a rhythm of life may be this year, I just, I need to pray five minutes a day. It's better than what I've done for years. Maybe for you, it's you want to read smaller chunks of scripture. Maybe for you, it's you want to commit to when you go on a walk in your neighborhood, you just want to think things of God. Like there are so many disciplines that God may invite you into for there to be a divine connection in your life. Uh, Pistol Pete played basketball years ago. Scored more points than anybody in college basketball history. Like when you think about Razzle and Dazzle, he couldn't dunk like John Morant dunked last night. 
But when it comes to dribbling in between the legs and, and the razzle and dazzle and all these fancy passes, like Pistol Pete was, like he was a man, like so many people watched and imitated his game. He found the Lord later on in his adult life. He died in 1988 at the age of 40. And it was a year before he died. He was reflecting back on his life. And here's what he said. The key to my ability was repetition. I practiced and practiced and practiced again. I gave the sport my total commitment. I tried everything I could and every way I could to perfect my skills. It was like an obsession and it paid off for me as a player. And what if we said something similar about our faith? You know, for, for too many people, what we do is we, we take seriously, like, if I want to be physically healthy, here are the things I'm going to commit to physically. If I want to eat healthier, I'm going to come up with a plan of how I can eat healthier. I'm going to have a plan for my mental health. I'm going to have a plan for my relational health. But sometimes what we think is when it comes to our spiritual growth and maturity, maybe it will just happen. When God's inviting us, think about this. What practices are there in our lives that are helping us to grow into the image of Christ? So Jesus does talk about spiritual disciplines, even though he doesn't use the phrase. And the greatest sermon in the entire Bible, the greatest sermon ever, ever told, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, right in the middle, Jesus talks about three disciplines. And here's how he does it. In chapter 6, verse 2, he says this, when you give. In chapter 6, verse 6, and says it again in verse 9, when you pray. And then in verse 16, when you fast. So I don't think this is Jesus saying giving's the most important spiritual discipline in your life, praying's the second most important, fasting is the third. I think Jesus is speaking into three things that help people stay connected to God. But notice the language Jesus uses. It's not if you give and if you pray and if you fast. And it's also not a command. It's not Jesus saying you better give and you better pray and you better fast. The language Jesus uses is when you do it. Jesus just assumes that people who are following Jesus and people committed to life with God, like these are things that are just going to happen in your life. When you give, it's just an assumption. It's going to happen. When you pray, it's just an assumption. It's going to happen. When you fast, like these things, they're just going to happen. They're gonna, they, they will be a part of who you are. Now, I want you to see, just for a moment, who it is Jesus is speaking to in the Sermon on the Mount. Sometimes we hear the message, but we forget the crowd. In chapter 4, beginning in verse 25, it says this, uh, beginning in verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And news about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, and those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed. And he healed them in large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan. They followed him. This becomes the crowd for the Sermon on the Mount. The people who sit there to hear the message are people who many folks had not allowed into the synagogues, who people looked at him and didn't think they would ever become like the spiritual elite. Like these are people who had figured out faith because all these bad things had happened to their bodies or their minds. And the first people Jesus begins to bless is the people Jesus had just made well. And I think this is important for you to see that 
having a vibrant prayer life is not just for the quote-unquote professionals, for those in full-time ministry, doing full-time work with faith-based organizations. It's not just for the elders of the church or for those who teach Bible class every single week. The people Jesus is inviting into deeper life, it's, it's all of us. It's anybody who has been saved by God. That anyone who's been saved by God, God wants to help them mature. There's nobody God saves that God tells heaven, hey, we want to save that person, but there's no way we could ever help grow that person. Anybody God saves, God wants to grow. So Jesus is speaking to all these people who maybe had not been invited or allowed in the synagogue space and religious space. And now Jesus is saying, you are welcomed into my space. In fact, when I invite you into my space, I want you to experience me in a way where giving and praying and fasting, this is for you because God wants to be connected to you. Now let me point out, these aren't on the screen, let me point out a couple of things real quick. If you have your Bibles open, in chapter 5, verse 16, it says this. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. So what Jesus says is, let your light shine so that other people can see it, and when they see it, they will give glory to God. In chapter 6, verse 1, it says this, Beware of practicing your acts before others in order to be seen by them. In chapter 5, verse 16, it's, hey, go be a light. People need to see the light. In chapter 6, verse 1, it's, hey, be careful to not practice in front of other people that they may see it. It's about the motives of your heart. Of course we need to be a light to other people that they can see it. We got to talk about Jesus in our lives. We got to represent Christ in ways that people know we're representing Christ. But in chapter 6, verse 1, what Jesus wants people to know, when it comes to your spiritual practices, this isn't so other people see you and think, wow, that person is so spiritual. Which is why Jesus, when he talks about giving, he says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Which is much easier than a digital era, right? You're not dropping coins in and plates, but don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. When it comes to praying, what Jesus says is go in your closet and pray. You don't have to go pray on porches where everybody sees you. When it comes to fasting, don't, don't let the whole world know you're fasting. Just fast in a way where it's a divine connection. And what Jesus says is if you want to go give in a way where you want other people to see you give, or pray in a way where you want other people to see you pray, or fast in a way where other people get to see you fast, that's your reward. You want it to be seen, guess what? You got seen. But Jesus is inviting people, hey, do these things out of, like your motives are to be connected to God. Now here's what I do want you to see. There's this one screen, five different verses, and I want you to see the singular form of you and the plural form of you. Form of you. Then in chapter 5, verse 16, when Jesus is talking about let your light shine before others, it's plural. It's y'all, you guys. I don't know where you're from, but it's, it's the plural form of that. You all, you know. In chapter 6, verse 1, you all don't practice like your acts of righteousness so that other people can see them. You, everybody. When it comes to giving in verse 2, though, it's singular, not plural. Right? When you give, singular, when you give, don't let your left hand know what the right hand is doing. When Jesus talks about praying, it's plural. When Jesus talks about fasting, it's plural. All right, so here, just for a few minutes, let's talk about this. Why is the first discipline that Jesus talks about in Matthew 6, why is it giving? Like, if I were to ask you what is the most important spiritual discipline to help you to grow in God, I doubt many of us would start with giving generosity. I think we would start with prayer or Bible study or something that was a form of prayer or engaging the Word of God not giving. 
So here's what Jesus says. Chapter 6, verse 2 through 4. It says, so when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be done in secret. And then your father who sees what is in secret will reward you. The one thing we don't want to talk about much, giving, is the one thing we think about every day of our lives. Generosity, according to Jesus, was just assumed that a righteous person would be a generous person. And here's how Jesus says it later on in chapter 6. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and, uh, where, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In verse 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So I don't bring up Matthew 6, 2-4 today in a way to say... Hey, church, guess what the budget is for the church, and we need you to give today to help us out. But I do think giving to the local church is good and biblical. I do think that we have a church with a mission and a vision and values and with a heart to follow God and to serve the world, and that is an investment worth making. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 2 through 4, Jesus doesn't mention the word tithe, but I think tithing is good and biblical. I don't think it's meant to be legalism, but I think giving away 10% of what you have should be a standard and a goal. Casey and I started this when we got married at 21 years old. We'd have been encouraged by, we had friends and mentors in our lives encouraged us that if you try to wait until you think you have enough money where you can begin to tithe, it's too late. You develop too many poor habits in your life. Start now. Our first year of marriage, we made $11,000. But together we said, hey, we're beginning our marriage with generosity in mind. I think it should be a goal. If you're not there, try to work there, pray there, develop a plan that can help get you there. If you're there, stay there. Let God continue to grow you from there. In Matthew chapter 6, 2 through 4, Jesus says nothing about first fruits. But I think first fruits is good and biblical. You'll have people speak into your life who know a lot about money and wealth and how to grow well who are going to say things like, make sure first you're putting money in savings and an emergency fund and stacking away for retirement and then mortgage and rent and your bills and Netflix and Disney Plus and all the other, all the other streaming devices we signed up for and we forget to cancel, right? And then if there's anything left over, you give it to God. God doesn't ever ask for our leftovers, but for our first fruits. First and foremost, we remember that God is gracious and God is generous. And we don't give back to God because it's already God's in the first place. We're just giving in a way that reminds us who God is. So why does Jesus start Matthew 6 talking about giving? And again, I don't think this is Jesus saying giving's more important than prayer and giving's more important than fasting. We're going to talk about those in the next two weeks. Maybe there is something about Jesus knowing 
that if you want a vibrant prayer life, you didn't know that like just the love of money or the pursuit of it or greed can strangle us in a way that keeps us from the presence of God. Like if we, if we don't learn generosity in our lives and what it means to live life with open hands, then maybe it keeps our heart from being open to God too. And maybe that's what Jesus is doing. It's hey, for you to pray in a way where there is deep divine connection. You need to cultivate some generous practices in your life. And for this to happen, it's a realization of how good and generous God has been to us. That we serve a God who has chosen not to hoard any of his possessions, but to use them to bless the world. All right, so back to this guy, Pistol Pete. 40 years old, dies of a heart attack on a basketball court. And I didn't give you the full quote of what he said. One year before he died, here's what he said. The key to my ability was repetition. I practiced and practiced and practiced again. I gave the sport my total commitment. I tried everything I could in every way I could to perfect my skills. It was like an obsession. It paid off for me as a player. But I'm not so sure in life. If I'd given that same devotion to my faith, which is what I do now, I'd have been a better person in the long run. There was this commitment to Christ that he began to live the last few years of his life. It's all he could think about. And whatever profession you're in, whatever your desires are for life, let this be a season that helps develop the practices in your life that will provide the support structure, the root system for you, that will help you grow in faith and grow closer to God for the rest of your life. I want Psalm chapter 145, verse 8, just to stay on the screen as we take communion today. And it's a reminder of who God is for us, that the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. Every morning now we come out, or Sunday mornings, we come out of the sermon into communion with the bread and the cup. And I try to remind us most Sundays What's beautiful about the table is Jesus is the host. And when Jesus is the host, Jesus has something to say. And when Jesus is the host, his arms are open to whoever and wherever you have been inviting you into his kingdom, into his presence. And when Jesus is the host, something may happen. So this morning as Jesus hosts us at his table to help us be reminded of the bread and the cup. And there are six tables and you're invited over the next few minutes to make your way to one of those tables. Something may happen. And if something happens, we provide some people in the room just to be here for you. One of our elders, Doyle Bradshaw, one of our shepherds, is going to be to my right to receive you. If there's anything we can bring before the body here at church, Doyle's here to receive you. Ephraim's going to be in the back. One of our shepherds, he'll be in the back to receive you. And Jenna and Lenora, two of our prayer partners, and I don't know which one of you want to be on the right and the left, but Jenna and Lenora are here to pray, and I will be over here to my left to receive you if there's anything we can do for you. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes. And God, in this moment, we thank you for being so gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. Thank you for not hoarding your good gifts, but that in and through Jesus, we get to experience them all. So let us come to the table 
God, through your help, let us come to the table with open hands and open hearts to be touched by you in this moment. Through Christ we pray. Amen.